Hi there, Rolf here. Thanks for listening to this episode of my course podcast, Markets and Society. I've included a description and additional material where relevant in the episode notes. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so let me introduce you to the class Markets and Society. And basically what I'm going to do is lay out an argument for why this course is called Markets and Society. It's a class that I came up with. It's my own invention. So if you really hate it, (laughs) I won't take that personally. I was teaching for many, many years in our MBA program. As you know, we're a university. We also have a business school. We have an MBA program. Uh, And I was for many years a professor in that MBA program. And a few years ago, I decided I didn't want to teach in the MBA program anymore, and I would rather come and uh, make undergraduates suffer instead. And the reason for that is because over the last couple of years, I've become increasingly alarmed by the state of affairs that our human society finds itself in. I hope you share at least some of that alarm. And I thought uh, the MBA is not the right venue to think about that pedagogically or academically or didactically. Uh, Instead, an undergraduate class, people who are 18 years old, thinking about who they are, who they are going to become, the kinds of things that will interest them is a much more fertile ground for presenting the kind of material that I felt compelled to bring to people's attention. And so that's why I made the switch. And the class that came out of that process of thinking about what I wanted to do became this class called Markets Markets and Society. So this is not the kind of traditional class you might find in many other places. It's not a survey class. It's not a sort of introduction to world literature or something like this. As I say, it's an idiosyncratic class that reflects my own sense of the problems that we face and an attempt to provide some kind of intellectual uh, apparatus to be able to think about confronting those problems as we go forward. Uh, And so a lot of the material that we're going to be covering over over the course of our semester together... Uh, redounds in some way or another to this question of the role of markets and society as they link together. But to give you the overview right now, I see the world that we live in and the world that we are going to be living in as fundamentally characterized as having a serious market problem. We have a problem with our relationship to the market. It will become clear hopefully by the end why I say that. Therefore, if we have any chance of solving the serious problems that loom before us, we need to take this question of what is a market seriously. We need, to, we need to place it into a critical perspective and examine it in order for us, I think, to come up with better answers than we've come up with so far looking to the future. So in this introduction, I'm going to essentially make an apologia, a defense of my title, of my class, Markets and Society. In the first half, what I'd like to do is I'd like to start with the kind of problem that we're in. Why are we in the state that we're in? What are the ideas, shall you say, that explain... Uh, some of the stubbornness with which we encounter then thinking about changing uh, our patterns of behavior with respect to the future. And in the second half of the class, I'm going to make a case for just truly how urgent it is that we uh, we change our mindset. So I'm going to start by laying out the case for what I call the modern narrative. And what I mean by that is the story that surrounds us, all of us in this room, as citizens of modernity, people living today. What makes us different for example, from people who lived 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 400 years ago, and as we'll see in this class, 150,000 years ago. Now, it's very interesting. If you had gone back, let's go say your great-great-great-grandparents, say going back to around 1800 or maybe 1750, something like that. So that's only 
what is that, 250 years ago or so, 275 years ago. The idea that you would live a life that might be substantially different from the lives led by your parents or your grandparents would have been an absurd notion. Given the, the nature of uh, the statistical demography of the time, chances are we would almost all of us just be peasants. And the life of a peasant had a remarkable continuity. Their parents were peasants, and their parents' parents were peasants. And when you had children of your own, what did you expect them to become? Peasants as well. And the life of a peasant is remarkably unchanging. It's why rural peasant culture tends to be the most conservative cultural group that you can find, because they are the inheritors of traditions that go all the way back into the mists of time. Nothing really seems to change from one generation to the next. And then all of a sudden, sometime around the Industrial Revolution, around 1800, say, things started to change very rapidly. And instead of seeing yourself in a content continuity with the people who had gone before you, all of a sudden now there was a rupture, and you started to think of yourself very differently. People started to see themselves not as the inheritors of some tradition that stretched back into the mist of time and their purpose was to perpetuate it by reproducing it, but instead this notion of change, the notion of a sort of movement that was taking place inside of human society. But it wasn't just any kind of movement. It wasn't random movement. It was a movement towards something that was better. And we incorporate or encapsulate this thinking even today. The expectations that we have for ourselves is that our lives will at least be as good as, preferably better than, the lives of our parents. And their lives were better than the lives of their grandparents, broadly, broadly speaking. This is a very alien notion. It's a modern idea. And we've built a narrative, built, or, or a sense of modernity, springs from the narrative that we've built around that notion. And there's a couple of elements that inform it. The first is the influence of the Enlightenment that took place in the 18th century in which, according to Kant, man uh, had the first opportunity to move beyond what uh, Kant called his self-imposed tutelage, a kind of maturity process, right? We were we, a coming of aid. And one of the things that the Enlightenment did, it stressed the idea of human reason as the basis for all knowledge. So rather than spend your time studying the mysterious ways of God, instead what you should be doing is using your reason in order to further your understanding of the world around you, and the product of reason is essentially scientific knowledge, knowing how things work and why they work one way and not the other. And there's a certain number of consequences that emerge from this kind of enlightenment <coughs> elevation of reason. Broadly speaking, after the Enlightenment, starting in the 19th century, we see this, this idea take, take hold, and it's not just in philosophy, it's also in economics, for example, that there is a kind of underlying pattern to human development. And that underlying pattern is not random or static, but instead one of progress and improvement. So the great change that's taken place over the last 250 years is that whereas your great-great-great-great-grandparents would not have lived inside of a society that had the concept of progress or improvement as part of their self-understanding and self-awareness, that is fundamental to our modern-day identity. We want things to work better, to be faster, to be more efficient, to be more productive. We want our lives to be longer, to be healthier. These are conceits that modernity has granted us, but they're very, very new. We can see it as a kind of anthropocentric teleology, anthropocentric, placing man at the center of things. And teleology means towards a goal, a telos, the Greek word for objective. There is a human goal. There is a human objective. 
This is what the great discovery of the Enlightenment seemed to portend. And you can see it showing up in something like the thought of Kant or his colleague, well, not colleague, slightly younger German philosopher, Hegel. Because both Kant and Hegel, so-called German idealist philosophers, encapsulate around the year 1800 this notion of a teleology, of human beings moving towards something. So instead of a kind of random expanse of time into which each life is, is placed, now each life has a purpose. And that purpose is to be participant in this project of moving us towards the goal of humanity. Kant, for example, very famously imagined a perfectly moral world. Is it possible, he asked in his philosophy of morality in the, in the third critique, he said, is it possible for us to live in a perfectly moral universe? Well, the question is, are human beings capable of perfect morality? And Kant said, yes, they are. Look around you. Does it feel like we're living in a perfectly moral world at the moment? Would you say, have we got that right? No. So that's something we should be striving for. The purpose of your life, the purpose of the human life is to, is to exercise your morality in the best possible way that you can. And if everybody did that, eventually what would happen? We would arrive at a perfectly moral world. So Kant lays out this idea, yes, perfect morality is possible, but we all have work to do to get there. We have to become our own, as he called it, moral legislators, moral agents. And that is your life and the life of your children, and it goes forward, and eventually we will arrive there. Hegel took on that to one step even further. He asked himself a question. I'm simplifying a great deal. But he asked himself a question. He was a good Christian. He said, how is it that a perfect God could create an imperfect world? That doesn't make any sense. It's logically confusing. Why would a perfect God create an imperfect world? Was it just for shits and giggles? Was he having a laugh? Was he like lost a bet and said, okay, I'll make some imperfection? No. For Hegel, the imperfection of the world around us must somehow connect to the perfection of God, which seems strange to us. But if you think about it, what is perfection? Perfection is making the imperfect less imperfect. And so for Hegel, it was a similar kind of exercise. What's the role, what's the duty of an individual human life? Live your life in such a way that the imperfect world that you are born into is slightly less imperfect when you leave it. In other words, it places a kind of challenge on us as human beings to strive towards this goal. And in Hegel's crazy view, eventually at the end of this, we would become as perfect as God himself. And there would be a merging between what he called world mind and divine spirit. But we can ignore that part. This leads us to the idea of, leads to different kinds of outcomes at the end of the 19th century. One is Comtean positivism, uh, which today we might think of as the scientific method, the positive nature of science. By exploration, by experimentation, by knowledge acquisition, we can always make things better. We observe what's happening and we improve it and so on. And we can enfold that scientific process into a positivistic use of human reason. And the net result is that the world around us will become a constantly better place by virtue of structuring the knowledge that we have. And on the economic side, we have someone like Marx. Marx, as you probably know, not a big fan of capitalism, right? Didn't like free markets and so on. But he was a big fan of the kinds of things that capitalism created, potentially, namely consumer culture, the possibility that people could live in a world of plentiful goods. And so Marxist materialism takes the capitalism out of the production of goods. But Marx is no less idealistic in some ways as Hegel because his view of man is that capitalism, as we'll see when we come to him, is a necessary stage for us to pass through in order for us to arrive at something better. 
So somebody living according to a Marxist worldview would see themselves as having essentially an obligation to struggle to overcome class differences such that eventually humanity would be able to transcend the problems that class creates and we can live in a bountiful classless world. And it's an interesting thing, and we'll explore this again when we come back next time. It's an interesting inversion, a 180-degree switch from the, fo- the foundation of sort of Western thinking about ourselves as social beings and where we've ended up as a function of our own modernity. For those of you who know the Jewish Bible, you're, you, you may remember in the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis starts with God creating the world. He creates Adam and Eve, and he puts them in a very nice place, a kind of retirement home for people who don't know anything, the Garden of Eden, right? And there they are, and they're just having a great time. And the nice thing about the Garden of Eden, you don't have to work for a living. Everything you need is provided for. And what do Adam and Eve do in the Garden of Eden? They fuck it up. And how do they fuck it up? What do they do? They eat the apple. And what does the apple represent? Knowledge, right? Why are we cast out of paradise? Because we acquired knowledge. Knowledge is evil. God gets angry, blows the whistle out of the pool. Everybody has to leave. Seems a little harsh, but there we go. I mean, it was an apple. Anyway, look at where we get in the 19th century. Knowledge has now not become the source of evil, but the source of all good. The way that we can lead better lives is by expanding in what we know and then leveraging that knowledge in order to create a better world. So it's a full inversion of the story that we're telling ourselves. Ancient Jews saw knowledge as problematic and sinful. Today we see knowledge as something that is a good that we all seek to acquire. So broadly speaking, we can trace then a kind of reading of our past, a reading that we have of ourselves written onto the past in the following way. That as time extends on, our knowledge increases. So we can replace the time function as a knowledge function, right? We knew very little at the beginning, and now we know a lot more. And as we increase our knowledge, the complexity of the world around us rises correspondingly, which is why the world of today looks so different than the world of 200 or 400 or, say, 10,000 years ago. And as a result of that increasing complexity and rising knowledge, the changes have not been agnostic in the sense that it's not like one was just as good as the other. Instead, our modern narrative imposes over this particular view the sense of constant progression. So as we acquire more knowledge and our societies become more complex, we get better. We are better as people. Our ability to be human beings is better now than it was in the past. We've gone from a position of autarky. Think of our prehistoric ancestors clubbing their food to death for their daily dinner to a world of integration. How many of you are involved in food production? Presumably zero because you're sitting in a classroom, not out in the fields. How many of you even know anybody who's in food production? Answer, probably zero, right? A few, okay, a few. Wait, who is it? Okay, okay, you spoiled my example. Those of you who are descended from farmers, fair enough. But most of us have almost no connection to the food that we eat, right? Why is that? Because we live in a world of integration. We've moved from being 100% responsible for uh, keeping ourselves alive through killing what we eat to essentially none of us being responsible for that. And I'll have some data for that in a moment. As a result of this, there's a line, isn't there, between this world of the autarkic individual self and the world of the integrated modern human being. We've gone from a world that was primarily rural to a world that is urban. We've gone from one that is primitive to one that leverages technology, at least as we see it. From individual to institutional, rather than individuals working out the way they want to lead their lives, now we live in a world of institutions. And an institution is simply something that establishes rules and reasons for doing things in a certain way. 
from the superstitious to the rational, from the familiar to the anonymous, from the immediate to the deferred. Let me pick up on two of these, the familiar to the anonymous, because we don't often think about how important this is, and we'll explore this again in this class in some detail. Imagine you're driving down the road, and there's a red light. Why do you stop? You stop because you live in an institutional world. You live in a world of rules, and the red light is a rule, and it says don't drive through it. Now you're the other person who's got the green light, and you drive through. Think, how can you trust that the person in the car who stopped at the red light or is coming to the red light will actually stop? How come you have faith? You don't know them. They are anonymous to you. So why do you have faith that you can drive through the green light and not be smashed uh, by an oncoming car? And the answer is because the institutionalism of our integrated world creates a safety even though it is anonymous. That's a very unusual circumstance for human beings to find themselves in. For most of our history, in order for us to have sense of security or safety, we had to know the people that were around us. And yet today we live in cities of hundreds of thousands, even millions of people. Tokyo, 30 million people. You never meet 30 million people in your entire life, not even a tiny fraction of that. And yet people feel perfectly at home in these anonymous agglomerations of people because that is a feature of what integration can do. And immediate versus deferred, and we'll see this again in the very first part of our class, one of the characteristics of prehistoric or so-called primitive peoples is they tend to consume what they have immediately. They don't, they don't save anything for future use. Whereas we are a society built around the idea of deferring for the future, right? You're getting an education not to enjoy it now, but for the gains that it will bring you later. You're saving money so you can buy a house or get a car, right? So we live inside a world that emphasizes not just today, but encourages us to think about tomorrow, which is one of the reasons why the very poor thinking that we're doing about tomorrow is particularly egregious. We don't live in a world that's ad hoc. We live in a world that is planned. In short, we live... We've moved from a world of the uncivilized into the world of the civilized. That is the modern narrative. We are the inheritors of a pattern of civilization. We are the beacons of what that civilization represents. And at the heart of civilization is embedded this idea that humanity has as a core feature the ability to get better, to progress, to improve. This is what I call the grand narrative of human progress. I'll come back to this in a moment. And... Looking back over the last 200 years, there's a lots of reasons why we absolutely should think that. For example, going back even only two or 300 years, almost everybody was involved in some way or another working in the field. In the last 100 years, we've seen this dramatic decrease in the number of people who live or who, who are rural. And you can see, for example, most notably in China, when China decided after the Maoist revolution to industrialize rapidly, you can see that a chief feature of that was to move people out of the countryside and into the city. The countryside, primitive, uncivilized. The city, urban, anonymous, but nonetheless civilized. This has been made possible because as a result of knowledge and technology, there's been an extraordinary decline in how much it costs to make our food and at the same time an extraordinary increase in our ability to produce food. So the combination of an increase in agricultural productivity and dramatic decline in the cost per calorie has created this revolution over the last 100 years. We don't often think, I think, about this enough because if you go back, say, 150 years ago, most people were either living on the land or if they weren't, they were spending most of their money to buy food. Today, the amount of money you need to keep yourself alive through the purchase of food is a tiny fraction of what you can expect to earn. So you're not working literally to put food on the table, although that is the phrase. Most of us 
I mean, I could give you five euros per day and you could easily keep yourself alive. Might not be great meals, but between your noodles and I don't know what else you can get for five euros, an apple or something, you can easily get the calories you need on a daily basis. So we've reduced the cost of food almost to nothing as a result of the dramatic decrease in cost through incredibly higher productivity. This has meant that we have, that the modern self has something that our pre-modern selves did not have, namely disposable income. We have money that we can spend on other things and not just some tiny little elite at the top, but lots of people. So what does this create? It creates the basis for a consumer goods economy and so we move into a consumer mindset. If you had asked somebody, say in 1800 or 1750, what it was like to consume, they wouldn't have understood the question. Consumption for them would have meant simply food. Whereas today, what do we consume? We consume vacations and we consume clothing and we consume online platforms and any number of things, right? We're constantly coming up with new ways for us to consume. All of that consumer economy made possible by the underlying uh, revolution that takes place in agriculture in the 20th century. Similarly, over the same, pa uh, same period of time, as part of this idea that man is a knowledge-driven uh, being, look at literacy rates, 1800. Only 10% of the world's population could read. And if you dive further into that, like say a country like France, for instance, which had a relatively high literacy rate, even in France, something like half or maybe even 60% of the population uh, had no reading ability at all. And another 20% had only very basic reading ability. Whereas today, although it may not feel like that if you're French, almost all Frenchmen can read. If we go out to other parts of the developing world, we find literacy rates going from near 100% declining very dramatically in almost all cases to well under 50% and often much lower than that. So we've transformed who we are. Our ability to read unlocks our ability to know. And so we suddenly create new potentials for human lives to be, to be led. We live a lot longer than we used to. You only have to go back about 100 years to find life expectancies, maybe 150 years, to find life expectancies in the order of anywhere between 25 and 35 years of age. Now, to be clear, that's an aggregate life expectancy, so this includes infant mortality. If you made it to the age of 20, you could probably live to the age of 50 or 60 or something like that. But still, that's not nearly as long as we think of ourselves having uh, right now. And also think about what it means if half of the children, or say a third of the children who are born, will die before they reach the age of five. It's a fundamentally different way of thinking about reproduction, your family, and so on. And now we can expect to live 70, 80, even over 80 years, depending on where you're located in the world. As a result of dramatically increased life expectancy and dramatically reduced infant mortality, we've created another problem, have we not? How many people are living in the globe today? Eight billion of us. How many were living in 1900, do you know? One billion. So from 1900 to the year 2020, we've gone from one billion to eight billion. That could be a problem. In fact, many people say that is a very serious problem because if you want to lead a nice middle-class lifestyle, everyone has a house and a car and, I don't know, 15 pairs of shoes, as many people like to point out, there are not enough earths to go around to create a middle-class lifestyle for all the people that we've created as a result of our knowledge, right? Why, are we, why have we got such a higher population? Because we know how to stop children from dying. We know how to keep people alive in ways that we didn't before, and so populations have exploded. So there's a guy named, for example, Paul Ehrlich, who coined the idea of the so-called population bomb, a sort of hyper-Malthusian moment, which population increases radically, and they look at this and they think, we're doomed, we're doomed. 20 billion of us, you know, get out while you can. Buy that bunker in New Zealand. 
But in fact, it turns out that as a result of the very knowledge that has created this hyper-Malthusian moment in time, there's a built-in safety mechanism uh, that kicks in that's readily observable when you look at the data, which is that fertility rates decline very dramatically as a function of prosperity. But prosperity is modernity. So we might say fertility rates decline very much as a function of people moving into a modern life. Great Britain, which took a very long time to industrialize, the pioneer of industrialization, it took almost 100 years for the average fertility rate per woman to fall below three. But countries like Iran, China, South Korea, which industrialized very rapidly, as it were, brought a form of modernity to their citizens in a much more intense and shortened time period, 18 years, 11 years, only a decade in Iran for that rate to fall to three or below. But it doesn't stop there, because in fact, as you may know, every single developed society, every single post-industrial society has a birth rate not below three, but below two. There is not a single wealthy society that can maintain a so-called replacement birth rate. The best example of this that I know is Japan. Japan has, and I think 1970 had about 140 or maybe it was 120 million people. I'm just making up the numbers, but it's something like that. Their population is expected to fall by more than half. Japanese society, very wealthy. Japanese women don't want to have kids. So their replacement birth rate, or their birth rate, sorry, is so far below replacement that their population will decline by half. And because it's Japan, they don't like immigrants, so they're simply accepting the population loss. Whereas other countries, Germany is a good example, their population is declining dramatically. German women don't like having German children. But Germany had a solution. What was the solution that Germany found? Let's suck up two million Syrian refugees and just put them into our factories and make them German? No problem. So other countries, Western European countries, although it creates debates, have solved the population problem through immigration. But Japan is an interesting case because they will not accept immigration. It's very difficult to immigrate to Japan. I, tr I defy you to try it. I mean, for one thing, you have to speak the language, and that's almost impossible. So there we go. So let's look at that, because it's very interesting. This is what's known as the demographic transition, when you go from higher to lower than replacement birth rate. I won't spend too much time on this. What do you think the trigger is? So it's, it's about wealth, right? There's a certain point where if you're wealthy enough, you stop having kids. Why is that? Because if you're very poor, having children is a form of wealth creation. It's something you want to have. Well, if you want to have something, why is it? It's because it's a good that you want to own. So if you're very poor, having children is helpful to you. Another set of hands to put out into the fields, to, to go get water for the family, to herd the flock. But if you're wealthy... Children are no longer an asset that bring in money to you. Instead, what are they? As all of you are in this room to your parents, right? Sucking off the parental teat, wasting their money in stupid classes like this one while they have to foot the goddamn bill. And after that, are you going to turn around and be grateful to them? No. When they get old, you're going to lock them in a home and I'll see you maybe in a, in a, you know, in a month or something like that, right? So having children is a very different economic experience. Now, the question that's really interesting is how much money per capita do you think it takes to move from seeing children as an asset to seeing children as a liability? So if I have very little money, I can grow assets in the womb of my wife. And if I have a lot of money, the thing that's growing in the womb of my wife is just going to cost me grief and heartache and, you know, wasted weekends because i got to take my ungrateful kid to the soccer. That's a little personal history here, but whatever. So the point is, what do you think that cutoff is? How much money per capita? What do you think the per capita income is? What's your guess? 40,000. 40,000. 50,000. 50, no, I think like 
28, I like, I like the, yeah, a lot of granularity to that guess. Not 20, not 25, not 30, 28. Okay, any other guesses? You're all way off. You're way, way, way off. Lower. $4,000 income per capita. If you think about it, we could solve the population problem essentially within two decades. If we simply spread the global wealth that we create more evenly so that developing countries with very high birth rates like the Congo or Nigeria or, or Indonesia and created the economic conditions to allow them to have $4,000 per capita income, we would anticipate, because it's in the data over and over again, that their birth rates would decline very dramatically. But even if we don't engage in that act of Kantian moral, moral responsibility, that will happen nonetheless, because as a function of modernity, it sweeps all people up within it. People who used to be poor now have much higher levels of prosperity. South Korea, very poor society coming out of the Second World War, now has a very high level of prosperity and so on. So we can imagine that at, over time, that population problem will solve itself. We're not going to look at a future of 25 billion people. We're looking at a future of maybe 11, and then it will start to decline. And once it starts to decline, it starts to decline quite quickly, and so eventually we'll reach a nice stable average. So these concerns that somehow there are too many people for the kinds of lifestyles that we have is actually a problem that largely takes care of itself. And you can see I had the graph up here before. Look at a country like uh, the Gambia, a poor country, underdeveloped, very high birth rates, very young population, right? Growing essentially assets inside the family versus a country like Denmark. Danish women just don't want to have that many kids. And so the result is you have a gerontological shift. You end up with these so-called inverted pyramids, and you have a lot of old people who have to be supported by a much smaller, younger population, which itself creates, uh, creates an issue. Just to say that it's a good example of the ways in which the progress that we embed as part of our sense of ourselves solves many of the problems that it throws up. Oh, it's too many of us are living. Our mortality rates are not high enough, and so it will explode in population. Ah, not so fast. People who have options, people who have money, people who have alternatives, turns out one thing they don't want to do is have gigantic families with 15 kids because two brats is more than enough. Okay, so let me show you what this looks like in practice. In other words, the, the grand narrative of human progress, what does this look like when spun as a story? And I have a little YouTube video. So here we go. First, an axis for health, life expectancy from 25 years to 75 years. And down here, an axis for wealth, income per person, 400, 4,000, and $40,000. So down here is poor and sick, and up here is rich and healthy. Now, I'm going to show you the world 200 years ago in 1810. Okay, this is a guy named Hans Rosling. He's a Swedish statistician demographer. He died a few years ago, sadly. But he did a lot of pioneering work on, uh, on, human, on human de uh, statistical human demography. Uh, and he made this program for the BBC. So Hans Rosling comes in. He's going to tell us a little bit about how he sees, based on his, on his statistical, the gathering of statistics, or his, the statistical work he's done around the world, what does he see in our future as a species, right, basically? And it's not very long. And in 1810, it was pretty crowded down there, wasn't it? All countries were sick and poor. Life expectancy were below 40 in all countries. And only the UK and the Netherlands were slightly better off, but not much. And now, why start the world? The Industrial Revolution makes countries in Europe and elsewhere move away from the rest. But the colonized countries in Asia and Africa, they are stuck down there. 
and eventually the Western countries get healthier and healthier. And now we slow down to show the impact of the First World War and the Spanish flu epidemic. What a catastrophe! And now I speed up through the 1920s and the 1930s. And in spite of the Great Depression, Western countries forge on towards greater wealth and health. Japan and some others try to follow, but most countries stay down here. Now, after the tragedies of the Second World War, we stop a bit to look at the world in 1948. 1948 was a great year. The war was over, Sweden topped the medal table at the Winter Olympics, and I was born. But the differences between the countries of the world was wider than ever. United States was in the front, Japan was catching up, Brazil was way behind, Iran was getting a little richer from oil, but still had short lives. And the Asian giants, China, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh and Indonesia, they were still poor and sick down here. But look what is about to happen. Here we go again. In my lifetime, former colonies gained independence and then finally they started to get healthier and healthier and healthier. And in the 1970s, then countries in Asia and Latin America started to catch up with the Western countries. They became the emerging economies. Some in Africa follows. Some Africans were stuck in civil war and others hit by HIV. And now we can see the world today in the most up-to-date statistics. Most people today live in the middle, but there are huge differences at the same time between the best of countries and the worst of countries. And there are also huge inequalities within countries. These bubbles show country averages, but I can split them. Take China, I can split it into provinces. There goes Shanghai. It has the same wealth and health as Italy today. And there is the poor inland province Guizhou. It is like Pakistan. And if I split it further, the rural parts are like Ghana in Africa. And yet, despite the enormous disparities today, we have seen 200 years of remarkable progress. That huge historical gap between the West and the rest is now closing. We have become an entirely new converging world. And I see a clear trend into the future with aid, trade, green technology and peace. It's fully possible that everyone can make it to the healthy, wealthy corner. Okay. So this essentially is in this, you know, using these statistics using or using these metrics. So the metrics of life expectancy and societal wealth essentially is the grand narrative of progress unfolding, right? Where are we all headed? We all started down here, life was difficult, we were poor, we didn't live very long, and we're all moving towards a world where we have lots of money and we live nice, long, prosperous lives, right? That is the narrative of modern progress. And notice when he starts, 1810, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, the period of modernity, the post-enlightenment period, the period in which this notion of man has almost an obligation to progress. It is part of who we are, it is part of that human teleology uh, kicks in, and now we run that forward over 250 years or so, 200, 210 years, and look where we are, right? We're now increasingly crowding up into the corner where all of us have a kind of independence that comes from leading long lives, free from disease, and having enough money to, to do the things that otherwise we not, might not be able to do. So it's a really nice narrative, right? And you can't argue, and these are the statistics, this is what it tells you, no problem. 
And if we imagine there was a big debate in economics, for example, 20 years ago, is there such a thing as convergence? Are, the, are nations really coming to the same thing? And so on, this used to be the kind of debates that people had. But broadly speaking, I think it's incontrovertible. We live longer lives, we lead healthier and wealthier uh, lives. So the, in that sense, the narrative of human progress isn't wrong. It's simply describing a situation as it is. In a nutshell, the idea is uh, over time, the, bro the broad mission of human beings is to develop greater degrees of complexity from our very primitive Paleolithic origins, living in caves, wearing skins in groups of five or 10 or maybe 50. And then as we run the timeline forward, we get better and better and better. We bring new technologies, new social ideas to bear. We get rid of things that offend the conscience like slavery or women being stuck in the bedroom, etc. And we start to imagine a world of universal equality, universal prosperity, greater technological access and so on and so forth, right? And that essentially is all backed by the idea that we, as a species, using our reason, generate knowledge. That knowledge generates technology. And as the beneficiaries of technology, this is the wonderful modern world we get to live in. See, those are your tuition dollars at work. Thank you. Um, okay, so that's the grand narrative of human progress, and we're all part of that narrative. I mean, maybe there's a couple of you who are determined, I don't know, neo-Marxist anarchists or something. Good for you. Um, but broadly speaking, I mean, the fact that you're at a university like this one suggests that you are very much wrapped up inside of this broad narrative that we've created for ourselves. What's the problem with that narrative? Over time, increased complexity, What's the issue that we have? If it turns out it's not population, if it turns out it's not necessarily extreme divergence between poorer and richer parts of the world, what's the obstacle that we face? Well, let's think. What happens in the Industrial Revolution that actually unlocks all of that technological potential, that economic potential, and as a result, social, cultural uh, potential? It is, of course the rise of our modern market economies, right? This is what happens in the 19th century. We move, the, the society moves onto a footing that is based on modern market distribution of capital in order to achieve the things that we as a society want to achieve. Yes? So could we be also using more and more uh, in a complex way natural resources? Yes. In the industrial revolution using coal? Exactly. The, the secret of the industrial revolution was that it moved from using the energy that's provided by animals, including ourselves, and instead, or natural things like wind, don't want to leave the Dutch out, and instead found a miraculous, cheap source, almost free source of energy, namely hydrocarbons, coal, uh, and later oil, and now even more later still natural gas. Free energy. With free energy, you're freed from what the limitations of human beings or workhorses having to perform tasks for you. Now there's a suddenly much less limited world of possibility. And so the Industrial Revolution and all that it produced largely is based on the ability to harness all of that plentiful and cheap energy. But what is all that cheap, plentiful energy done? Climate change. Climate change, exactly. Right? Something exogenous to ourselves. Something that is not part of the anthropogenic 
teleology, something it was, as it were, a byproduct of our own attempts to become more prosperous. People living in 1850, shoveling coal into train locomotives, did not think that they were going to be eventually polluting the planet for their great-great-grandchildren, but in effect, that's what they were doing. Because if we run the system as we're running it now, we are looking at, in your lifetime, an average surface temperature increase from pre-industrial levels of more than three degrees, which doesn't sound like a whole lot, but you're, you are the first climate change generation, so you know better than I that three degrees is a catastrophic amount of change to average surface temperatures. We are already feeling the effects of these changes, and so we have a problem because the grand narrative of human progress, leveraging technology, benefiting from all the things the Industrial Revolution has unlocked, has now hit a kind of a barrier. That barrier is a livable planet. It turns out that our strategy for making ourselves healthier and wealthier is incompatible with a livable habitat. That is a serious problem, I think you'd all agree. That's probably not a trade-off that we're very uh, happy with. And this is the protagonist or the silent protagonist of my class, is climate change. Because climate change, the problem of climate change, is not really a problem for the planet. People talk about saving the planet. Does the planet need to be saved? Is the planet in trouble? Planet doesn't care, right? Planets had five, six mass extinctions already. Planets being hot, planets being cold. Planet just does its thing, rotating around, spinning around the sun, right? Who are the people who need to be saved? Us, right? When people talk about saving the planet, it's a curious form of deferral. So well, I'm not really doing it for myself, I'm doing it for the planet. I feel good about myself. Actually, no, you're doing it for you. We're the ones who need to be saved. We're the ones who need to take actions. If we all die out, 10 million years from now, planet will be fine, we'll be doing a different thing. But if we want ourselves to continue and keep at some level the prosperity that we've been able to manufacture for ourselves over the last 250 years, this is the problem that we need to address. But it's not a problem that we can address head on because where fundamentally is climate change coming from? What is creating climate change? We are creating climate change. How are we creating climate change? By using, by being the very prosperous modern citizens that modernity has itself created. You living your life creates and actually aggravates the problem. And the reason for that is because the only way you have to live your life is via the market mechanism that, we've cr that created this prosperity in the first place. Climate change is a market problem. It's a problem of the markets that we have around us which organize our affairs because at the moment, the only possibility we have to organize those affairs is in a carbon-intense way. Not one of you in this room is capable of leading a carbon-free life. Not one. Even if you decided to go out into the desert and like go completely off-grid, there's no way you could live a life that wouldn't consume. If you bring one plastic bucket with you to shit in, you're still a consumer of carbon. We are required in order to keep ourselves alive, let alone to keep ourselves alive according to the standard of prosperity that modernity has created for us, we are required to be consumers of carbon. Modern consumption is carbon consumption. And we have no way of leading our lives outside of the paradigm of modern consumption. But modern consumption, that paradigm is created by what? It's created by the markets. It is a market mindset. So we have a market problem. If our society wishes to survive, let alone thrive going forward, but let's not set the, we won't set the bar too high. Let's just start with survival. 
we need to do something about the market that's making the problem as bad as it is. We need to rethink what it means to live inside of a market society. The good news is that over the long lifetime of the human species, we have lived in many, many different ways with many, many different kinds of markets. A market is not a universal artifact. It is simply a set of rules that exist at any given point of time that help facilitate exchange. It's just an institution. And like all rules, if the rules that you have at the moment aren't working, what should you try to do? Change them. And that's, I think, the great challenge that we have going forward. We put a lot of emphasis on green technology, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, if we're going to be able to solve the problem at the scale that we need to address it, we're going to have to think about it at the level of the market. That is why my class is called Market and Society.